morning. It's good to see you all this morning. A um, couple of things I want to mention before we get to John 9. Uh, first of all, there's a congratulations in order. Some of you heard about this, but Caleb and Emily Alley had their second child this morning at 7.23 a.m. Uh, Stephen Edward was born, and uh, if I remember correctly, it was six pounds, 15 ounces. Looking at grandma and grandpa over here. Um, and uh, 19 and a half inches long. And so he was born this morning and uh, just wonderful congratulations are in order uh, to them. Pray for them as uh, they're uh, recovering uh, and as he is enjoying the first few hours of his life. And I'm sure that uh, hopefully they'll be headed home within the next couple of days. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention, I don't know if you noticed or not, but it looks a little different up here. Um, we have a new pulpit in place. Um, we were gonna go, we, we were going to go with a spiral staircase pulpit that went all the way up there and uh, that I could kind of climb up into, um, but we decided not to do that. I like a little simpler, which is the reason for this, and so uh, we'll see how it goes. Um, this morning, it's kind of like getting used to a new chair. We'll see how, how things uh, move along this morning, but John chapter 9 is, is where we're going to be. When I was in elementary school... Uh, which was a while ago. I remember going shopping each fall, which this, for you parents, this is coming up quicker than you can imagine. We're already in July. You're gonna have to go shopping for your kids for the new school year, and there was always that exciting moment when you got to which box of crayons you would get for the year. Which one would be yours? And the question was, how extravagant are we going to be this particular year? How are mom and dad feeling this year? as far as the box of crayons. Would we save money and go with the box of eight? Or the box of 16, a little better than eight, but, or this year would we go hog wild and would we get the box of 64 different colors? My argument was, of course I need crowns with names like salmon and raw sienna and purple mountain majesty. You want me to get all A's, don't you? I need these crowns. 64 colors is a lot of crowns. And you can actually find online, it's hilarious, the names of the Crayola crowns throughout the years because they would change them and adjust them over the years. And you can find lists of those. Everything is available on the internet if you go looking for it, apparently. 64 is a lot. But I began to to think about how many colors are there out there in the world. Has anybody tried to count this and quantify how many actual colors exist? And it may surprise you and it may not to find out that they actually have tried to count this up. And it's estimated right now that the human eye can perceive somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 million different colors. Of course, that's an estimate and it doesn't take into account the fact that there are different lighting levels that will influence those colors. There are surrounding colors. When you put raw sienna in between Purple Mountain Majesty and orange, that shapes what that color looks like as well. And some believe that every human perceives colors in a slightly different way. And so 10 million, yes, but we could say that ultimately the number of colors that are 
out there is infinite. We, we don't know, and it just goes on and on. Now, when you think about that, take a moment to just pause and appreciate how magnificent the God is who created your eye to be able to perceive all of those different colors with all the shades of light. There is no way that just happened into existence. What a glorious thing to have a God who creates beauty and delights in the detail of beauty, of color, and of the human eye and giving us the ability to perceive those things. How magnificent. God is extravagant. Now, thinking about all those colors, imagine for a moment, try to put yourself in the shoes of a person who has never seen even one of those colors. They were born blind. Only darkness, only blackness from the moment of birth. No idea what a color even is. No way to have it described to you in words that make sense. How would you describe what a color is to someone who's never, ever seen one? Never had that perception go into their brain and what it does to you and the joy it brings when you see these different shades play themselves out in a setting sun over a lake. None of it. Well, today we're going to meet a man who was in that exact situation, and he had his life radically transformed and turned upside down by Jesus and by a miracle that he did. And in a moment, he could now perceive the entire array of colors and all the shades of light. Just imagine what that would do to your brain and how amazing that experience would be. Now, the miracle is amazing in and of itself, but the work that Jesus does here isn't just about his power to give sight to a blind man physically. That's not all this is about. As you're going to see in John 9, this miracle teaches us about spiritual blindness. And it teaches us about what happens when the light of the world shines into the darkness. What happens when light comes? So today in this passage, the whole of John chapter 9, we're going to see three results when the light of the world shines. Three results when the light of the world shines. The first one of these is found in the passage that Dom read this morning, John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And it is that blindness is confronted. When the light of the world shines, blindness, which we'll find out is pervasive, is confronted. As you get into chapter 9, I want you to keep in mind here where we are in the Gospel of John and what has happened over the last few chapters. This chapter is connected back to the Feast of Tabernacles, remember? We're still in that whole mode where Jesus proclaims that he has living water and he is the light of the world on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And after a whole discussion with the religious leaders and his saying that he is, I am, before Abraham was, I am, they pick up stones to stone him and he makes his way out of the temple. Now we don't know exactly how much time occurred after he made his way out of the temple and the events of John chapter 9, but... It's pretty quickly. It could have been on the way out of the temple, or it could have been a few weeks later or a few months later. We don't know, but it happened fairly quickly after John chapter 8 and the Feast of Tabernacles. If you look at verse 1, you can see that John is connecting this back up. It says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. 
Now the issue's front and center here, isn't it? I mean, it, it hits us right in the face. This guy has been blind from birth. Darkness, nothing, he can't see a thing. Now, as we've studied John, you, you read this and you understand that these physical miracles, because we anticipate that something's going to happen, these physical miracles that Jesus performs point beyond themselves to a spiritual truth. That's how John literarily has written this. Yes, Jesus has the power to heal and transform and raise from the dead, but these signs and miracles point beyond themselves to some greater spiritual truth about his ministry and his work. And this detail is meant for us to understand here that this man has been blind from birth and it's meant to point beyond itself from just dealing with this man to the reality of spiritual blindness. In reality, we have all been born in this situation, spiritually speaking. We're all born into this world physically able to see, or most everyone is born physically able to see, but we're all born into spiritual darkness and spiritual blindness. The Bible, other places, calls this being born physically, spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2 is a Classic text for this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Spiritual death spiritual blindness. This is the situation that we're born into. And just like this guy who could not give himself sight, he could not conjure up colors to show up in his eyes, you and I cannot give ourselves spiritual sight. We cannot raise ourselves spiritually from the dead. Now, as Jesus and the disciples here pass by this man who was born blind, who've been blind from birth, the disciples take note of him and they ask Jesus about him. Look at verse two. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, this was a very common assumption at this time. You would see someone who had some sort of physical malady or some specific problem, and you would think, okay, he has done something wrong that caused this issue this disease, this blindness. Or if he didn't do it because he was blind from birth, maybe his parents did something that brought this about in his life. This is very common. It's even to some extent common today for people to think this and try to connect a specific physical issue or struggle with, with sin. Now it is true, let's explain this. It is true that generally speaking, sin brings about health problems and physical problems and blindness in the sense that because the world is broken, because there's a curse, because there's death in the world, there will be people who are born blind. But what Jesus denies here and what you and I cannot do is that we cannot try to connect and we should never try to specifically connect this sin with this physical problem or this judgment as we see it. That's what he denies here. Jesus actually goes beyond just not affirming what they say and actually says this guy's blindness fits within God's sovereign purposes. 
There's a reason for this. God is going to use him in his purposes and plans. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now notice that he uses the word displayed here. Think about the theme of this chapter, dealing with blindness and sight. And he uses this word, which we could translate revealed or manifested, and it fits very nicely with with this theme of sight. Jesus is saying that God has a purpose for this man's blindness, and even his blindness is going to show or manifest or reveal God's glory in Jesus's work. Jesus continues. He explains further in verses 4 and 5. Look there. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now what Jesus is saying here is he's talking about his incarnation. There's a brief period of time where he's on the earth and he is the light of the world. It's not that he stops being the light of the world after his ascension back to the Father, but he's saying there's something special about his time and there's something very clear and vivid about his time on the earth when the light shines. Now, verse 5 ties us back to chapter 8 and verse 12. The last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, if you flip a page back there, you can see, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of of life. And so because he mentions again that he's the light of the world, this ties this whole miracle, this whole chapter, chapter 9, back to what he says in chapter 8, verse 12, and it really answers the question, what happens when the light shines in the darkness? Here's what happens. The light reveals. The light guides. The light manifests the glory of God, and one of the ways it does that is by confronting blindness. Look at verses 6 and 7. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. It's so understated, right? So he went and washed and came back seeing. Why does Jesus spit on the ground here and do this? Why why not just speak as he's done before and make this man whole and able to see? Why does he spit on the ground and form mud and put it on the man's eyes and have the guy walk through the city to this pool and then wash the mud off in this pool? Well, a couple of reasons. I can't be 100% sure on this, but I suspect, and I think there's good reason to think that what's happening here is Jesus is alluding back to the moment of creation in Genesis 2. Man was formed of the dust of the ground at the original creation, and I think what Jesus is doing here is presenting this act of healing and making this man whole as an act of new creation. He's bringing about spiritual sight, new creation through this. God brought life and light out of nothing at the moment of creation, and Jesus is doing that same thing here with this man. Light and life. New creational life and light. Another reason that he does this here and sends this man to this pool 
is because of the name of the pool. If you look there, John specifically draws our attention to it in verse 7. Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Why does he draw our attention to this? Well, this pool received its name because the water that flowed into it flowed out of a spring in the Kidron Valley into this pool. So think about the dynamics here. The man received spiritual sight by going to the pool called Sent. Jesus is the sent one. He says that over and over again in this gospel. He's sent from the Father. He comes from the Father. How do we receive spiritual sight? We go to him. And he gives us new creational eyes and brings life and light through his word. And you can see at the end of verse 7 that this man who was born blind, complete darkness, goes back to seeing. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Completely new. What happens when the light of the world shines? Blindness is confronted. This man's blindness was the result of being in a world broken by sin. The world was broken. And at this moment, when Jesus does this, the light shines in the darkness and confronts the brokenness of the world. It confronts spiritual blindness. What happens here is new life is created, and he is given the ability to see all the beauty of those 10 million different colors in a moment. Now, at this moment in the story, at this point, Jesus sort of drops out a bit, right? It's kind of an amazing story because he heals the man. It's stated very simply, and then Jesus kind of disappears for a while. He's going to come back in the story later on, and obviously he's still, still the discussion of everything that's happening. He's the center of the discussion, but now he goes away. And he won't be an active part of this story again until verse 35. And that dynamic and that change in the story brings us to our, our second result here, when the light of the world shines in the darkness. And this is the bulk of the story here. When the light of the world shines, blindness is confronted, but blindness is also displayed. It makes it quite clear when the light shines and you can't see and won't see the light, it puts your blindness on display. It's quite obvious that you are blind when you can't see the light. Now, this is in verses 8 through 34, and we're going to move pretty quickly through this section. And there's a reason for that, not just because I want to get done at a certain time, although that's true. We're going to move through this story quickly because I want you to feel the flow of the narrative. This is written as a story. And one of the best ways to feel and to understand what's happening is for us to just walk through and tell the story, pick up on what's going on here. And as we do that, I want, I want to give you a couple of observations to help you look for, to, to have you look for as we go through the story. First of all, one with the man and one with the Pharisee, the Pharisees here. So the man that was born blind, he received physical sight, he changed physically, now, throughout the rest of this chapter, you're going to see a slow shift in his spiritual understanding of who Jesus is. It's like he's received sight and he, he increasingly sees with more clarity. His descriptions of Jesus slowly shift and change throughout the story. It's a beautiful thing to watch. And ultimately, it ends up with him believing 
fully seeing who Jesus is and worshiping him at the end of the chapter. Now, the other observation that I want you to look for is the religious leaders and how their perception of Jesus changes throughout the story as well. They become increasingly hostile toward him. They become more and more entrenched in their opinion and their beliefs of him. They accuse him of things. Their hatred for him increases throughout the story. And so it's almost like an inverse here with the man born blind and the religious leaders. And you'll see Jesus explain that inverse at the end of the chapter. This whole thing is is put together beautifully. So let's pick up the story in verses 8 and 9. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. Now, if you're a blind man in this culture, the only way for you to even try to make a living is to beg. That's what you had to do. What else could you do? So people who lived near him saw him all the time. I mean, you walked by him every day on your way to the market or on your way to work. He was the blind man that lived in their area of the city, and he would be begging every day. You'd seen him for years doing this. And then all of a sudden, one day, this guy who you've seen for years is up and walking around and can obviously see what is going on. They can't make sense of this. This is so far outside of their realm of possibilities that they can't can't grasp it. And they can't grasp it to the point where they're willing to believe that there's a lookalike who could see who's come into the area and the blind man has just disappeared. They're more willing to accept that than they are that he has been healed. He insists, though, that he is the guy. Look at verses 10 through 12 here. So they said to him, obvious question, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? That's another obvious question. (laughs) I would want to meet this guy. He said, I do not know. Notice here he calls Jesus the man. That's what he'd heard about him. Keep in mind, he's never seen Jesus at this point. He was healed after he went to the pool and washed and Jesus was gone. He only knows what people have called Jesus. The neighbors here can't make sense of this, right? They can't make sense of it. And so what do you do if you're struggling with something and can't make sense of it? They do what comes naturally next. They, without hostility, I think, I think there's no bad motives here, but they take him to the religious leaders. It seems like a miracle has occurred, so let's get the input of the religious leaders. Maybe they know what's going on. So they take him to the Pharisees. They're trying to understand something that is floored them at this point. Look at verses 13 and 14. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, It was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Now we get a little extra detail here, right? If you've read the Gospel of John, you've seen this before. Jesus heals on a Sabbath day, and that brought about a whole lot of trouble. 
They didn't like that he did that, and it had, we had several chapters of back and forth over healing on the Sabbath. He healed the, the lame man then. So the, the Pharisees see this and see that he healed on the Sabbath. They hear that this man has been made whole and received his sight, and they begin to formally question him, trying to find out what's going on. Look at verse 15. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Probably we in the Gospel of John here get a condensed version. He probably gave a lot more detail, but John pairs it down and gives us the condensed version here. So the Pharisees react. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. Verse 17, so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. So they listen to this guy, give his explanation of what's happened to him, and they end up disagreeing about it. There's a division among them. So they ask the guy what he thinks, and he very naturally Knows he's been healed, and so he's a prophet. Probably this guy has heard the story from the Old Testament of Elisha healing Nahum by having him go wash in the Jordan River. You remember that story? So he thinks something like this has happened. So this guy must be a prophet who's come into the world. And so you can see his understanding of Jesus progressing a little bit. He goes from being the man they call Jesus to now, as he thinks about it more, he's a prophet. Well, they're not happy. The authorities are not happy with this answer. Obviously, he's healed on the Sabbath, and so they're, they're defensive about that anyway. They already have quite a few issues with Jesus, and so they're not happy. So as we get into verses 18 to 23 now, they move into a new phase of their investigation. Now they're going to try to prove that this whole thing is a farce. The whole thing's made up. It's a stunt that Jesus and his people have done to try to garner interest in his ministry. Look at verses 18 and 19. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind. So after they interview him, they're not buying it. They don't think he actually was born blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son? who you say was born blind. How then does he now see? I mean, they're even going to the extent where they're going to get his parents out and try to expose this as a lie. Oops. They end up confirming that a miracle was done by calling his parents as witnesses. Look at 20 and 21. His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. That seems like a weird thing. They're willing to publicly testify that he was born blind and has now been healed. That's exciting. Your son can see now, but they don't want to argue for him, and they sort of punt back to him. Why do they do that? Look further in the passage. Verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. 
Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. They're terrified of the reaction of the authorities. That kind of gives us some insight into what the culture was like at this time regarding Jesus and the perceptions of him, particularly from the religious leaders. And so the Pharisees now have confirmation from his parents that he was born blind and has been healed. What else are they going to do? Now they go back to the man born blind. And they're going to interview him again, and they're going to try to find some hole in his story. And as they do this, they put their hostility and their spiritual blindness on full display. And that's really what's happening here. They are showcasing the fact that they can't and won't see the truth about Jesus. Look at verse 24. So, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now, when they say give glory to God, they're not saying Tell us about your healing and honor God through that. What they're saying is, admit the truth about your situation. There's something you are hiding, and we know it because we know Jesus is a sinner, and so out with it. Tell us what you're not telling us. I love the man's response in verse 25. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, Now I see. There's a reason that many Christians have claimed those words. It's such a simple statement of faith, right? A simple proclamation of faith. Look, I don't know everything. I don't know all the answers. But the reality is I was blind and now I see the glory of Jesus Christ. I see the forgiveness of sins that he has offered to me. And by faith, I have grasped that and he has saved me me. There's a reason many Christians have affirmed and used those words to speak of their own of their own sight and salvation. But spiritual blindness is a stubborn thing, right? Look at verse 26. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? They keep pressing him and trying to expose him as a fraud And then look at verse 27. Here's the real issue, right? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. That's the issue. The whole thing boils down to this. They aren't listening. And that word doesn't mean just that they're not physically hearing. It's not talking about the sound waves going into their ears and understanding the words so that you could repeat them back. They're not listening to him. They're not listening and responding appropriately. To listen is to hear what Jesus says and to act as if it's true. And they're not doing that. So they hear him with this accusation and then the rest of verse 27. And you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they are not fans of that. And I love the snarkiness there, right? Verse 28, and they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. This takes us back to the whole discussion about Moses and Jesus in chapter 5. 
And Jesus says in chapter 5 that a failure to read Moses correctly keeps you from seeing who Jesus is. If you read Moses rightly, then you will see who he is and you will understand who Jesus is because Moses points to Jesus. The man here responds to their reviling with what seems like growing confidence and faith. I love this, verses 30 to 33. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. That is true. It is quite a miracle to put on display here. Verse 33 is the heart of the issue. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. You have to wrestle with the reality of what Jesus did. They have to. But their blindness is so pervasive and it has darkened their eyes so much that they utterly reject this. Look at verse 34. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. And what they're saying by that is they're not affirming original sin and total depravity. What they're saying is, look, you were born blind, which indicates that you or your parents sinned. They're buying into that line of reasoning that the disciples had asked about which was very common at this time. So they're accusing him of being born as the result of some sin, being born blind as the result of that. And because of that, they say this in verse 34, and you, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Now this whole section has, has been about the dawning of spiritual light for the man born blind. And it's been about the increasing hostility of the Pharisees as Jesus's works and character are put on display. And their blindness has been seen very clearly throughout this section. Now at this point, Jesus re-enters the story. The man gets cast out. Jesus goes and finds him, which is a wonderful picture of grace. And we get to our last result here. True sight is revealed. This is the, the whole crux of the story. Everything comes together beautifully in this section of of this passage and of this chapter. Verses 35 to 41. Let me show you what true spiritual sight looks like, right? So the man has been moving in his understanding from he's the man Jesus to the prophet to this fuller understanding of Jesus to some extent, saying if God wasn't with him, he couldn't do these things. And now we see clearly what true spiritual sight looks like. 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, what, why does Jesus use that phrase here? Jesus is identifying himself here by using this designation, Son of Man. He's identifying himself with this individual from Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. 
So Jesus is here identifying himself with this individual from Daniel chapter 7. He's presenting who he truly is to this man. And the question is, will the man see who he is and respond? Or will he not? Verse 36, he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And that is the essence of spiritual sight. It's faith. It's seeing through faith. True sight is faith, and true faith results in the worship of Jesus, as this man does. Verse 37, Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. Verse 38, he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. That's true spiritual sight. So let me try here to connect the light. Jesus is the light of the world. He shines in the darkness. He brings light. Let me connect light to faith because that's what we're equating here, right? We're saying that to truly see, spiritually speaking, is to believe. It is to have faith in Jesus. So when you enter a dark room, when you enter a dark room, what do you do? You turn the light on so that you can see where the furniture is and you can assess what's in front of you. The light gives you the ability to see the lay of the land, to see things as they are. That's what the light does. The light illuminates the reality in front of you. So Jesus comes as the light illuminates the reality in front of us, gives us the truth about our spiritual condition, about our sin, about God and his character, about who we are, about how the world works. Jesus lights up the room for us. We see the situation clearly now because he is the light of the world. So what does faith look like in that situation? Faith is when the light comes on, you see reality as he explains it in his word. Faith takes that perspective of reality. It takes the truth about sin, about God, about salvation, about forgiveness of sins offered through Jesus Christ. Faith takes all of those that have been illuminated by the coming of Christ and says that's true. That's how things are, and I am going to base my life on that. I'm going to commit to live as if those were true, as if that is reality. So, an example, Hebrews 11, chapter on faith. You can read the whole thing, but by faith, right? So what does the light show us? We understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This is one aspect of what we see and faith accepts this as true, believes that it is true, lives as if it is true. And then we live accordingly. So we trust what the light reveals. And then as we trust what the light reveals, where does that place us? Where do we end up? We end up in the same place that this guy does. We end up seeing who Jesus really is and we end up worshiping him because of who he truly is, of who he has shown us that he is as the light of the world. And that brings us to the last couple of verses of this chapter. And this is the explanation that ties everything together and explains the whole miracle. 
It explains the way the religious leaders have responded. It explains the blind man and how he has responded. And it explains why Jesus has come into the world and what he will accomplish. 39 to 41, look there. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt or no sin or transgression. But now that you say we see, your guilt or your sin remains. So here's what Jesus is saying. Here's the crux of the issue. It's this unbelievable reversal that happens. The light shines, and if you acknowledge your blindness, if you say, by faith, the light's shining, and I I can't see. I don't see. I'm born spiritually blind. I'm stuck in my sin, and I can't get myself out of it then you receive spiritual sight. That's the key part of this. That's what turns the whole thing. But if you deny your blindness, then you cannot receive the light because you don't think you need it. You don't think you're blind. You think everything is good. And you interpret reality the way you want to interpret reality. And it's completely off. It's completely inaccurate. This is why the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, begin with these words, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is the foundation. This is the starting point for salvation, for the Christian life. Humility is the distinct Christian virtue. This is it. It's the foundation of everything in the Christian life. This man knew he was blind. That was the starting point. The Pharisees don't. They don't know. That's why they asked us, are we blind? And by asking that question and by not acknowledging it, they prove that they are. They're arrogant, they're self-confident, and they reject the possibility that they may have been born in their sins and born spiritually blind, and they may need a savior. They reject all of that. One author commented on Matthew 5 on the poor in spirit by saying this. I think this is very helpful. Membership in the kingdom of heaven and God's blessing are supposed to belong to the spiritually wealthy, the spiritually together, the righteous, the rich, and the beautiful. Here, the blessings of God are promised to the spiritually poor, the wretched, the wayward, those who come to Jesus in perpetual need because they are empty and they know it, they're blind. They know it, and they see it, and they need a Savior. This is the whole point of the chapter, and that's the reversal that Christ brings about when his light shines. So here's some questions for you to ponder today as you leave. Do you recognize your perpetual need for Jesus? I mean, this continues after salvation, right? It's not just you recognize your need, and then you're saved, and you're good to go. This is the ongoing position of the Christian life. It's not a despairing recognition of your need. It's a joyful recognition of your need, that Jesus fills your need and fulfills and satisfies every single day. 
That's humility. Do you recognize your perpetual need for Jesus today, this week? Second, are you humble enough to accept by faith God's view of reality, of the way things are? Third, do you regularly recognize, this is what we talked about this morning in our class, the shocking reality that you have been brought from blindness to sight? That justification has happened, that you have been declared righteous, that your sins have been fully and finally forgiven. Do you regularly go back to that truth? And does that recognition produce worship of Jesus Christ in you? Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this passage, for the gift of spiritual sight that you have given to us as your people. I pray that you would help us to live in that reality, to go back by faith every single day to the truth that you have given us sight, that now we see things as they are. We see you, we see our sin, we perpetually need Christ. I pray that you would help us to rejoice in that reality every day and come to you for all that we need in our lives. We thank you for our time together. It's in Christ's name we pray.